Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. Sim, what's up, man? Thanks for coming on to the Hanu Health Podcast, dude. Hey, yeah, I'm uh, super excited to be on here and glad to be invited. Yeah, indeed, man. You know, I'm always, you know, perusing social media every once in a while just because I keep up with, you know, a lot of the health and wellness guys, a lot of the biohackers. And it seems like every time I look onto your Instagram feed, like you're jumping into some body of cold water. Did, did that happen today, I'm assuming? Um, well, not into uh, outside water, but uh, I did take a cold shower in the morning. <laughs> nice. But, uh, yeah. Nice. Do, do you do some type of cold, either immersion or exposure every single day, or do you take some days off? Um, I do take uh, days off. I, I'm, I used to, like, in uh, in the college, I used to take, like, a one year or two years straight, almost like a cold shower every day in the morning. Yeah. Uh, but uh, now, nowadays, I'm doing, um, depends on that, like, what I'm usually, like, what's my uh, workout routine like. So, um on most rest days and recovery days, I do try to do some sort of a cold exposure. Sure. Uh, because like it helps with reco- recovery and lowers inflammation and reduces soreness and you know has all those immune system boosting benefits. Uh, but if I'm trying to let specifically build muscle or stuff like that uh, or strengthen the gym, uh, then I don't want to do that that overly much because uh, there is a lot of you know research showing that you know cold exposure immediately after a resistance training workout can. Uh, inhibit some of these adaptations that happen uh, from the resistance training sure so like blunt the hormetic response yeah, yeah you'll get like less hypertrophy and um yeah because you do need the inflammation and stuff for the uh muscle growth yeah so, uh, you don't want to be blocking it after a workout yeah no makes sense uh have you have you read anything and uh, we're kind of just jumping right in but hey let's go for it you know one of the things that i do uh predominantly after a resistance type workout is i jump in the sauna generally around 20 minutes and then normally i'll finish off with a cold shower any any research that you've seen kind of in regards to kind of doing that kind of like hot cold contrast heat first directly after after a workout and then finishing with like a cold shower like i just want to make sure i'm not screwing things up here yeah well the heat uh, does have like a great benefit after the workout so uh you know what happens during the workout is that you know you know you break down some of the muscle tissue to a certain extent uh you release the glycogen your blood flow is like increased etc and uh you know the reason why the cold shuts down some of these adaptations is because it reduces the blood flow and reduces the supply of uh, nutrients to those tissues and uh, reduces the inflammation, etc. Those things don't happen with the heat or the sauna. Actually, get five uh, supply or the nutrients and the uh, blood into the muscles, so it speeds up recovery in that sense. And you also like uh, boost that growth hormone, which has uh, also recovery effects uh, on uh, that. Um, so yeah, like after the workout, the heat is the best thing. Like immediately after the sauna, after the workout, to go to the sauna. Uh, I, I don't think like a short cold shower would you know have this uh, negative effect on these adaptations. Sure. So you can yeah. still take like a cold shower. And it's not going to have like a huge effect, but like an ice bath literally for like 
two to five minutes or something, that would probably shut down some of those adaptations. But like a quick rinse in a cold shower doesn't have that. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. I'm glad that that's not like detrimental to my to my overall goals. Because one of the things is like when I do, so I, I do a Swedish sauna generally around 19, 20 minutes, you know, kind of right, right at that Rhonda Patrick range, if you will. And for me, like it is so welcome to jump into a cold shower. Like I don't want any other type of shower other than a cold shower when I've been in, you know, a 220 degree Fahrenheit sauna for a while, like just no, no thanks. So for me, it's always welcomed. Uh, but I just knew, uh, you know, it wasn't great to do like a cold immersion directly after a, a workout. So what's the, what's the timing? Is that like a, should it be like a 12 hour timing, six hour timing? What have you come across there for cold? Right. Um, I a specific research about, uh, that, you know, when is the optimal time window to do the cold, um, from a let's say protein protein synthesis perspective, then the protein synthesis after a resistance training workout that can stay elevated for up to like 24 uh, to 48 hours, depending on uh, how advanced you are. So uh, I think yeah, like you know, I think the closer it is to the workout, then the more detrimental it would be. But after let's say 12 hours, then uh, even then uh, it would have like a minute. Even like if you were to do like a long ice bath, it would have like a minute impact on these um, adaptations so like the longer you have waited after the resistance training workout then the less effect of it has on shutting down these pathways but uh, maybe like i personally would want to wait at least yeah, 12 hours yeah. uh, to not do like any kind of uh, cold yeah interesting makes a lot of sense well dude i know we kind of jumped just straight into it i'm sure we'll come back to cold maybe we'll talk about heat and stuff later uh so that we can dig a little bit deeper into the effects of sauna you know cold immersion and so forth but tell us a little bit about yourself like what got you into this interested in the world of health and wellness and then you know said biohacking and a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are going to be quite familiar with that word biohacking but maybe we should unpack it a little bit because i think there can be a little bit you know of confusion some people or like, you know, biohacking is injecting chlorophyll into the eyes, like the kind of the old grinders. And then some are like, no, no, it's, you know, just drinking, you know, a, a fat based bulletproof coffee or something. It's like, eh, well, maybe there's a little bit of an in between there. So maybe just tell us a little mm. bit of how you got interested in health, wellness, biohacking. Yeah, well, uh, I've always been somewhat like fit and interested in uh, physical fitness, like working out. Um, I did start to like more uh, routinely workout in uh, the last year of high school when I was 17 and uh, yeah that was like my first introduction to health and uh, fitness in general where I made, made it more like a commitment uh, thing and uh, went to the army for one year after high school and uh, then I started to study anthropology in uh, university as well after the more you know starting to do also like things related to biohacking like um, different supplementation and uh, different uh, specific like experiment experiments with nutrition like you know, the fasting mm -hmm. and ketosis and uh, mm, yeah like different kinds of supplements etc still being like relatively like novice and uh, what I started to do was just you know start to create content about it um, first in my blog it uh, transitioning over to making YouTube videos and uh, writing some books about the things I was doing mostly like uh, keto and fasting mm -hmm. and uh, yeah that's where it's been growing so I've been doing my YouTube channel for maybe like four to five years uh, and um, yeah since that it's grown to like several other new books that uh, I've written myself and co-authored and uh, doing also public speaking nowadays on different uh, these events like Biohacker Summit and uh, Health Opposition Summit and PaleoFX and those kind of things so uh, yeah it's become like a you know from a you know passion project it become like a more uh, professional uh, yeah. thing. 
Yeah, that's always the greatest stories, right? It's like when you have a really big passion or interest in something and then it becomes, you know, your job. You actually get paid to do it. Like that's that's the story, man. That's living the dream. So dude, kudos, kudos to you. I love just kind of hearing, you know, the evolution of having this interest and this passion about something becoming kind of, you know, part of, you know, who who you kind of are identified as, which is which is great both internally and externally by others. You know, one thing that I notice like on your website and then within social media is that you identify, you know, as like a health coach and a biohacking optimization coach. And I've noticed that you just talk about like a wide variety of topics, you know, related to immunity and, you know, mineralization and, you know, fitness and training and nutrition, autophagy, stress, kind of all these different topics. So you're a bit kind of like my buddy, Ben Greenfield. Like I see you like as someone who has a lot of knowledge about a lot of different areas, which is great. Is there anyone like in particular that for you is like your true, like this is like my really big passion or maybe it's even your passion right now. Like, are you super interested in a topic or two? Yeah, I think my main focus is shifting towards like longevity and lifespan, so to say. Like, I'm really interested in uh, that because I think it's almost like the most toughest question. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do you solve aging? And uh, yeah. the most, the biggest question almost uh, that we can work on. So I'm just like, yeah, I want to fix or like focus on uh, thinking of thinking about the hardest questions <laughs> in some sense. Uh, but of course, I also like value this resilience and hormesis mm-hmm. or stress adaptation. So uh, that was one of the reasons why, I don't know, like in the, in the army, at least I was very um, thinking about uh, this idea of stress adaptation and hormesis. I didn't know the word uh, back then, but I, sure. I was still like doing like cold exposure and, uh, you know, other kinds of stressors uh, on a regular basis. So I was thinking, oh, well, it's quite amazing how humans have managed to like, you know, survive for this long. And what the reason has to do with just this ability to adapt and, uh, you know, get used to different kinds of environmental circumstances. For sure. And uh, I think my, 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 like my initial passion is the kind of stress adaptation and hormesis because it relates to like evolution and uh, the human species as a whole. But I do want to focus on longevity, um, which doesn't mean, which do uh, contribute to each other. Like stress adaptation is part of longevity, but you know, longevity from the side of, you know, what causes aging and how can we like possibly uh, slow it down or reverse it? That's kind of my future focus a lot. Yeah. You know, I, I've noticed kind of myself as I've gotten older, I'm by no means old, you know, mid thir- mid thirties. However, like when I was younger, it was very much just about like, okay, how much weight can I put on? Just how much muscle is humanly possible for me to put on? And that's kind of what piqued my interest in the health and wellness. And then I was like, okay, well now let's optimize. I've gotten some of the basics or what I thought were basics back then, but were just completely bull crap. I thought were basics were down and now let's like optimize. So then that got me interested interested in the whole idea of like biohacking, but it was still kind of like, how can I biohack fitness? How can I biohack recovery? And then the final kind of frontier, I won't say the final frontier, it's the current frontier is like this idea of longevity and increasing both health and lifespan and kind of like what that means for me existentially as well, like especially with someone who's got kids and a family and like wanting to just be there and thrive kind of within my relational context. And so I'm very similar to you in the sense that like, okay, well now how can I leverage and utilize, just combine both of those fields of longevity and lifespan study with like health optimization and biohacking? Because obviously there's tons of overlap. And the one kind of feature that I've been honing in on is this idea of stress. 
and hormesis and xenohormesis. One of the interesting things, you know, on this podcast is that I've made so many comments about how people like demonize that word stress. Like stress kind of comes with this mm. negative connotation for a lot of people. Uh, but we teach kind of a different way of looking at it. That stress is actually at its core really intended to help than it is to hinder. Like at the core, stress is there to help and it can be a great signal. So you, you know, you wrote a book, you know, Stronger by Stress. You love this idea of hormesis and xenohormesis. So tell us a little bit, like, why should we not be demonizing stress and how can we leverage stress for, for better? Right. Yeah. Stress does have that uh, negative uh, connotation. But, you know, the problem is that you can't avoid stress. <laughs> you know, like you can't run away from it. It's going to come after you. And, uh, you know, in, um, in all, only in our like modern society, we have the privilege of, you know, uh, stress management or uh, de-stressing, so to say. Like in nature, you, you, you're almost like forced to always adapt. Uh, of course, the amount of stressors is different and the types of stressors are different between nature and the society. But uh, I think the main idea should always be that, uh, you know, if you're afraid of stress and you're like constantly trying to run away from it, then, uh, you know, you're eventually going to lose in terms of that the stress is going to catch up and uh, instead of trying to you know avoid it completely you should have sometimes this practice where you um, proactively try to increase your resilience against the stress as well because then the uh, stressors themselves become less stressful to you they cause less damage they cause less uh, mental distress and at the same time you're still able to like deal with them better and more productively uh, mm -hmm. so i think that's kind of a mindset shift can be uh, quite good because there are some, some even studies showing that who think that stress then they will actually experience more of these um, like rises in cortisol or uh, these inflammatory cytokines because of they uh, perceive the stress to be more harmful mm -hmm. and whereas those people who like you know don't do that uh, have a different uh, perspective on it then they uh, register less of basically stress response as well and you can even think of it from an everyday example like if you're in a disco or like a dance party <laughs> then the music is loud the lights are crazy and you know your body's in this crazy flight or flight state actually or like, you know, physically you do experience this a lot of uh, stimulus and stimulation, which is stressful, uh, but you're not really in a, you know, crazy fight or flight uh, response right. uh, compared to running away from a lion, although like you're still heart, heart uh, beat is racing, etc. Uh, mm -hmm. Or if you're like in a sauna, you enjoy it. It's, uh, it's actually de-stressing. It uh, helps you to calm down versus being in a desert. You think you're in a desert and you're going to die because there's no the water. <laughs> whereas yes. if you're in a sauna, you, you know that you're safe. So the kind of perspective is quite huge in uh, determining the outcome from the stress. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, the body and the mind will respond in very similar ways to to very different stressors. However, again, the perception of, uh, you know, the idea of safety, the idea of uh, not having the actual mountain line there makes a huge difference. So I, I get a little bit irritated sometimes when I hear people say, like, you know, kind of like stress is stress and the way the body deals with it is, is always the same. You know, nothing in physiology works like that, especially not in psychophysiology, the way that our mind and body interact with each other during a stressful event. So I think that it's kind of back to that idea that you mentioned of mindset, it's perception, it's the way that we're interacting with that stress. And a lot of the times that is by choice, it's by volition, that then dictates how we're going to respond to that stress. So it's like, it's funny, because 
you mentioned this idea of sauna and like every time I think about the sauna, I never am like fearful or stressed out about getting in the sauna. I see it as very much a, a means to allow my body to engage with stress. And I, I kind of almost see it a little bit gamified. So I do a lot of breath work in the sauna, a lot of mobility and movement in the sauna. And so I kind of pair these like relaxation strategies with something that's highly stressful because don't get me wrong. Like when I get to minute 10 or 15 of a 200 degree Fahrenheit mm. sauna, like, it's painful. Like it's not easy. Like I'm not yeah. sitting there like thinking like, Oh man, this is just like the, the most peaceful you know thing I could ever imagine. However, if I do allow my mind to go kind of off in this crazy direction of kind of focusing in on the pain and all I do is experience pain, well then it becomes extremely freaking difficult. So I, I, I completely you know agree with you there. So let's talk about this you know notion of, of stress because there are means of stressing our body in order to build ourselves back bigger, faster, and stronger. And then there are means of like prophylactic. It's like a preventative measure so that we can become more resilient to physiological stress, to psychological stress as well, which typically is a huge one for, for people. For you, what are kind of like your low hanging fruits for, and let's start more on the end of like things that you do to stress your body out in order to build yourself back bigger, faster, and stronger. So like, what are, what are your go-tos there? There's no pharmaceutical that is better than exercise, and there's no back that is better than exercise, so exercise is automatic. And I think like a lot of people may, may talk the idea of like working, and I'm, I'm working, of course, the possibility is there. Like most people don't really exercise that much uh, to be considered overtraining. And uh, the mm-hmm. problem may actually be that they uh, just uh, combine that exercise, like the other stressors in their life, like just not sleeping enough, uh, drinking too much caffeine. Um, whatever stresses they've been exposed to, work-related stress, relationship-related stress, uh, those things, they just get in the way of the exercise. So if you remove those, then the exercise would have never reached like overtraining, unless mm-hmm. you're literally running like marathons every day, all those kind of things. And even then, it's very possible to build up that uh, tolerance. Um, I'm not saying that you need to become like, you know, like a triathlon or um, Ironman athlete, uh, but you, but it would be still very important to kind of exercise at least, you know, four to five times a, a day, um, in some shape or form, it doesn't always have to be like this high intensity exercise that can also be like misleading, uh, just even right. like regular cardio is good where you're just, you know, jogging or uh, hiking. That's a great form of uh, cardio. It increases your aerobic capacity, which is, you know, good for the heart and increases your, I don't know, you know, everything related to being able to tolerate physical stress itself. And of course, resistance training would uh, build your physical body literally and increasing your bone density so you wouldn't like break a hip when you fall and uh, that you would have like high muscle mass and high like metabolic rate and bone density even in your like later years. So I think that right. that is the kind of the foundation uh, to that. Right. And so- besides that, you, know, yeah, you, you mentioned, yeah, you, one of the things that you mentioned, and I just wanted to hone in on, on real quick, is you said uh, that not necessarily high intensity interval training, but that's a big one that a lot of people uh, like to uh, utilize. It's one that I hear a lot kind of within this field. Uh, is there a reason why someone might use it and someone might not use it as a means of, of exercise and a means of hormesis? Yeah, high intensity exercise can be great, and it does. It is a form of hormesis, and uh, high intensity interval training, for example, like it does improve uh, aerobic capacity and uh, overall endurance, and you do save a lot of time. But you know, again, it can be, it can be a bit stressful if you're doing it all the time. Yeah, in the biohacking sphere, like everything can be like about time management as well. So they just end up doing this high intensity exercise all the time, and the body doesn't have time enough to recover. Right. 
Right. And I've heard a lot of women too, like a lot of women will engage in high intensity interval training and then it will, uh, you know, down regulate, uh, different hormones and cause problems with, you know, their menstrual cycle. So, uh, are you a huge proponent of like getting tested or like, you know, all obviously looking at kind of gender differences? Yeah, for sure. Like, uh, if you don't test, then you don't really know what's going on. Right. And I do think that it's beneficial to get like a annual blood test at least once a year if you're like, healthily and you're not really changing anything uh, if you are changing something or if you have had recent let's say some uh, poor results in in some um, biomarkers that you want to improve then you know maybe like uh, a few times a year is, is good to, to test as well uh, but yeah like mo- usually from a stress management side then uh, the first thing that tends to go down for all both genders is just uh, the thyroid mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so you know th- thyroid is very sensitive to stress and cortisol uh, so uh, with that you may experience like poor uh, blood circulation and uh, poor uh, uh, temperature regulation so you get cold hands and feet all the time right. you may get hair loss you may get like dipping issues you get like weight loss plateaus as well because the thyroid regulates your metabolic rate so your like metabolism will slow down to a certain extent um, and um, yeah just frailty and uh, those things can sure. be uh, signs of low thyroid and one thing cool thing or not a cool thing but <laughs> like a one thing that also kind of happens with the low thyroid is that your co- uh, the cholesterol goes up Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's one of the hidden reasons why the cholesterol may go up. It's because of the low thyroid. So you need the thyroid hormones to basically convert um, cholesterol into the uh, sex hormones and stuff. So you end up with a low thyroid with high cholesterol and low testosterone and low sex hormones, which is, you know... Recipe for disaster. Be, yeah, it's going to be a bad thing. And the next thing would be then after the thyroid would be the sex hormones like uh, testosterone, maybe some uh, estrogen problems for women. Yeah. Yeah. No, makes sense. So are, are you a proponent of, of zone two training? Is that something that you uh, either engage in or have coached anybody on? Because that's been a huge one for me because, you know, I've always been into the idea of resistance training, done a lot of high intensity interval, interval training, a lot of Metcon, you know, CrossFit ish type training. I've never been really into CrossFit, you know, per se. Got to watch out for that trademark there. Uh, but, uh, but I've done a lot of that work. And, but for me here, kind of within the, within the past year or so, uh, I've been really focusing a lot on zone two heart rate training, math training, a lot of, you know, Peter Atia has talked about this and Anigo San Milan, who he's had on, who I believe he just had him on again, or maybe he kind of re, uh, reposted a podcast, but I've utilized it and seen huge peaks in performance in the lowering of overall uh, heart rate, increased heart rate variability, uh, lowered blood pressure. A lot of these other biomarkers and metrics have changed with zone two training. Uh, proponent of that one at all? Yeah, I'm a huge fan as well. Um, I started implementing it maybe yeah three, four years ago, and uh, yeah, before that I didn't do that much of this uh, long, this low steady state cardio mm-hmm. that much. I used to do yeah like maybe like yeah sprints and stuff uh, before that. But yeah, after sure. implementing this uh, zone two, then I do think that from a longevity side, it's very uh, important to build up this uh, aerobic capacity. Because then, you know, what the idea behind it is that, you know, you're increasing your, I don't know, like the threshold at which you start to burn glycogen and uh, your basically heart is able to function more efficiently with less effort is kind of an easy way of saying that. So that's going to yeah. be just, you know, beneficial for longevity. Then you don't really stress out your body that much. It's almost like a recovery workout in some sense. You're uh, just oxygenating the body and uh, getting blood flowing and you're not like causing additional microtrauma and uh, additional like stress on the body. And that would like uh, interfere with other, like say for example, muscle growth. I, I like sure. those uh, zone two 
uh, on the days where I'm not doing weights. So I'll do the weights, but my body is recovering, so I'm not going to do any like, high-intensity exercise because that would like impose an additional stressor on the body that would require it to start to recover from that high-intensity session and not adapt to the previous uh, resistance training workout. So your body is, you know, if you impose two additional like stressors, then the body has to choose, okay, we will either repair this damage that comes or we adapt to the um, to the stimulus that we got from the resistance training. And it's never going to be both. Like uh, the body can only like adapt or like repair. So if you're constantly stressing out the body, then it's going to stay in this repair mode and it's never going to adapt and it's never going to get better. It's never going to get stronger. Right. Uh, so that's why I like to do the zone two um, after the resistance training because it's not going to um, interfere with uh, the recovery from that sense yeah. because it's like low, low intensity. Sure. Now, in order to assess your means of recovery, uh, are you utilizing metrics like heart rate variability? Are you more kind of checking in subjectively? Are you checking like lactate or lactic acid? Like uh, how is how is your means of actually measuring recovery? Yeah, well, no- nowadays it's um, yeah, it's how I feel subjectively. I do use the O-ring, like I have the new uh, yeah. third generation that I got yesterday. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and uh, it's, you know, obviously looking at your sleep quality is a good indicator of overall recovery. The heart rate variability, it measures the O-ring as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do uh, look at that. Um, but usually, like, if, my, if I feel crap and if I feel sore and bad, then it would uh, reflect in some of the results as well. Yes. And that my heart rate variability would be lower. You know, some one of the biggest reasons why I may feel under recovered would be that I slept bad or I slept uh, too short. Mm-hmm. So that will also be kind of very uh, useful. Sure. sure. Uh, to do that. Yeah, I, I like your I like your notion, especially for someone like you who's very much immersed in the biohacking world and the quantified self. Is that so many biohackers that I have dealt with? I won't say dealt with. That's not a great way of putting it. Have have interacted with, have really placed way too much emphasis on objective data without checking in subjectively, and they're basically like, you know what? If if even if I feel like crap, but my data is okay, then like I'm going for it, or 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 flip flop, like my data is uh you know my my data is really bad but i feel really good and they're like you know what i'm just gonna go with my data and take the day off i love this idea and i've talked about this numerous times on the podcast of actually checking in subjectively with how you feel and that should be kind of Mm. the primary proxy and the secondary proxy is leverage technology and you know what i mean i should be the fox guarding the hen house right i mean i own a health (laughs) technology company in the heart rate variability space and and for me like i should be preaching the gospel of hrv and how you should be checking and that should be kind of the thing that you only you know examine and look at but my co-host patrick McEwen and i like we talked about this idea that like it goes by the wayside sometimes and that is truly to the detriment of the individual to not check in subjectively so i just wanted to kind of make yeah. that comment there because i like hearing a biohacker talk about subjective check-ins yeah 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 well, i mean like it doesn't it doesn't make sense to uh start to measure if you don't feel like that uh something is wrong yeah like, uh, you should yeah. measure it only if, you, if there is some actually indicators uh, because then you're gonna spend your life measuring things yeah. or uh, you know doing tests and stuff <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. and like and and there are like some much easier ways to kind of gauge that because we can also like subjectively lie to ourselves or um hide the, how we actually feel like i'm actually yes. not feeling that sore or uh, vice versa that you're feeling you say that you're feeling that sore but you're not so like things like you know looking at your balance mm-hmm. can you stand on your one one leg or can you stand in a handstand or whatever those things uh, are also very fast ways to look at 
uh, whether or not you have whether or not your nervous system is recovered like your muscles could be recovered but if your nervous system is still like stressed out or uh, under recovered then you would have like a harder time to maintain the balance and you would fall over and stuff and of course and another thing is like grip strength you have this uh dynamometer yep. you you squeeze that it measures your grip strength yes and if it's weaker than it than it is uh, on a regular basis then you're you know weaker and you're not uh, recovered so uh yeah. yeah that's all quick and easy ways to look at yeah no i love it i love it man so cool so we we talked about you know building resiliency uh stress resiliency through engaging in exercise uh what are the other methods uh, that you typically either utilize for yourself or that you use in a coaching strategy that can help uh, from a like a xenohormetic or hormetic perspective yeah well i think exercise is the most important thing uh, because you can even like uh, be healthy on an unhealthy diet if you exercise. Yep. Uh, although it's harder to do, but it's still possible. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, I think nutrition. Just um, eating a diet that is giving you the essential nutrients and uh, isn't uh, super high in uh, calories. That tends to be like the kind of similarities between these longevity diets that uh, they're not uh, hyper palatable and they're not like um, excessive in calories and they do provide you the nutrients. Uh, there are like some differences between um, you know macronutrient ratios, etc., a little bit, but they're they're at least they're not like these very um, let's say uh, all these longevity diets. Uh, they tend to not be one way or the other. They tend to right. not be carnivore. They tend to not be vegan. They tend to not be keto. Uh, they're somewhat of a like a whole foods diet. They don't fall into a dogmatic camp. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, like even like the longest living person in history ate like chocolate and uh, red wine and uh, ate meat. Sounds like a great life. I, I'll follow that diet. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But that's from like a longevity side, but from uh, the stress resilience side, uh, there are like also like these xenohormetic compounds in the foods that describe like a xeno, xenohormesis is like foreign foreign to the body so right. uh, hormesis through like a foreign substance and those things come from mostly these uh, plant compounds uh, that cause a little bit of stress to our system like these uh, polyphenols mm-hmm. uh, pigments um, uh, yeah like resveratrol uh, turmeric curry curcumin ginger uh, these medicinal mushrooms reishi chaga uh, shiitake and uh, yeah like these dark berries those kind of things uh, yeah. they have these uh, different compounds that uh, trigger a small amount of, I don't, I don't, I don't know, like if it's right to say that they cause stress because it's not really stressful. Like no one gets stressed out from eating like a blueberry or <laughs> drinking coffee or drinking tea. Right. Uh, the, I think it, I think it just alerts the body that detects these uh, substances in these like the polyphenols and stuff, and the body just responds by upregulating its own antioxidant defense system. So it's not like that they're right. causing stress; they're just uh, alert, alerting and uh, triggering the uh, the body's own. Antioxidant defense systems that would, sure. you know, boost your immunity in the short term and uh, has like other benefits as well, like you know, blood sugar management and lowers cholesterol and um, whatever a specific compound uh, may uh, do. Now, are you of the mindset, uh, and from kind of your own coaching perspective, are you one of the individuals who thinks that there should be kind of a cap to the amount of, let's say, like maybe mildly toxic, uh, and, and, and that word I'll use a little bit loosely, we'll say xenohormetic, um, because I think it's probably a more appropriate way of saying it. You know, I think the carnivore you know group would say that it's probably strongly toxic, um, uh, and, and I don't fall into that camp. You know, I'm really agnostic when it comes to that. I'm really kind of more of an intuitive eater. I also 
uh, you know, just play around with a lot. Like I try everything. But are you someone who who thinks that we really should kind of cap or maybe kind of minimize the amount of exposure that we have to the certain plant foods and compounds? Or do you think it's really kind of like there's really uh, no ability to kind of like overdrive the system um, into kind of more of a like all out like stressed base uh, perspective that will not recover from plant based foods? Uh, well, I think that, yeah, like you can certainly overdo uh, anything that includes vegetables and that includes these plant uh, compounds. So um, I think, you know, the, and the, how much is too much is very subjective. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like some people can't eat even a piece of broccoli and they will they would get bloated or they would get some uh, autoimmune response or whatever. Sure. Or vice versa, like some, someone can die to eating peanuts and uh right and uh, things like that so i think it's very like a wide spectrum and uh, you know how much you can eat depends a lot on you yeah, it does i don't think i think it's uh, like it depends a lot on yeah things like your um immune system your uh, gut health your uh past history like whether or not you've been exposed to some sort of trigger that trigger like an event or a substance that triggered autoimmunity towards sure. a particular substance so uh, yeah it's a very subjective how much but some signs to look out for like yeah i could i can generally eat anything like i can eat a lot of gluten and i can eat a lot of any other kind of uh, potentially uh, xenohormetic lectins or uh, I, don't, I don't ever get i have zero allergies i can eat yeah. milk and yeah. things like that so i'm for, sure. fortunate in that, in that sense but right. uh, like so, some signs that people may get would be like you know gut issues probably like bloating constipation um indigestion uh loose stool diarrhea rashes skin conditions are huge um headaches migraines can be triggered from certain foods sure and um as well as like thyroid issues so yeah. some, some vegetables if you eat them like raw like uh, broccoli then they will inhibit iodine absorption and damage the thyroid as well so uh some foods obviously i would yeah prepare in a way that uh, lowers the amount of those toxins uh, or uh, compounds like you would want to cook your broccoli and cruciferous vegetables i wouldn't recommend eating like a ton of raw kale <laughs> right. that can be harmful for the uh, gut or uh, the thyroid so there are like some uh, yeah like rules or not rules but recommendations or guidelines to take into account yeah uh, but you can you can you can in theory or in practice you can still build up your certain level of tolerance yes uh, because like you know it's a medical procedure to uh, basically help people to reverse some of their autoimmunities by slowly introducing them to that particular substance so that their body would still be able to tolerate a small amount uh, and adapt to it and uh, gradually increase the dosage so over time like this uh, it doesn't work always it may not work for people who have serious autoimmune conditions but if you have like regular you know bloating from eating gluten or something then it may not be actual an actual celiac disease or mm-hmm. something it may just be because you've been stressed out and you've been eating that gluten with like vegetable oils or uh, some other things that cause uh, irritants to the gut and if you like reset the system and then reintroduce the gluten then you may not actually be causing any right. harm or you don't get any negative symptoms so it's just a matter yeah. of context yeah uh, so yeah like a lot, of, a lot of people who may end up going carnivore you know, in the past, they probably got exposed to a lot of pesticides and glyphosate and uh, stuff like that that wrecked their gut. And uh, now they're like just suffering a little more than the, someone else 
who uh, didn't have that uh, life uh, history. Sure. You know, I think it speaks, it's a testament to making sure that you check by either getting tested or again, just check in subjectively. Uh, And it's not just, you hear so many people in the different camps preach, you know, one side versus the other. And it's like, well, somebody's going to be wrong here, or maybe you're both right. Like, let's see kind of where we can meet in the middle. Because I remember back in about 2017 or so, when I was really getting into the health and wellness space, one of the big things for me was that, you know, kale, it was about 2016 or 2015, actually, kale was like, oh, you know, the, the biggest thing for everybody, everybody was eating kale, you know, if, if the paleo crew was all on the kale bandwagon, like, you know, everybody, the vegans, obviously are on, on the kale bandwagon. So for me, I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, well, kale is healthy. So let me eat it. So I ate raw kale, like every mm-hmm. single day as a salad, like a huge salad. <laughs> and uh, dude, I was starting to get the biggest gut issues. I always felt sluggish after lunch, I felt awful. I got tested um, afterwards, and I was dealing with some other things at the time. I was working in a hospital as a resident where I was exposed to toxic mold, so I, I will put that caveat there. But the other thing, though, is I found out that I was strongly allergic to oxalates. And, and by strongly mm. allergic, I had an insensitivity. I shouldn't say allergy. It was, I was insensitive, uh, or I was just say sensitive to oxalates. And uh, for me, I took them completely out of the diet, basically, like I didn't consume any type of food that had oxalates in it. And uh, I recovered pretty pretty quickly. And I still don't eat kale anymore just because honestly, I'm afraid of it. And I never liked it. Like I don't have anybody who's like, yes, I actually like love kale. I mean, maybe there are people out there, but for me, I never actually liked it. I just ate it because it was, you know, quote unquote healthy for me. But it's just, again, one of those reasons for us to make sure that we're getting tested. We're not just hearing that, Hey, so you know, there's so much dogmatic like language in the nutrition space, right? It's like, you should eat this or you should not eat this. And then there's camps and it just becomes really confusing. But I think what you're saying, here is like in the end like try it out get tested for it and then like if you have an issue it may not mean you know necessarily like you have to cut gluten out for the rest of your life because you have celiac disease maybe right now because of you know gut intestinal permeability or whatever it may be you have an uh, you have a sensitivity to it let's try to remove those things get tested for it and then you can maybe reintegrate as a as a test or an experiment later on to see how your body handles it am i hearing you right there Mm. sim yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, uh, it's uh, in the short term you maybe need it to like eliminate something, um, but you know I don't actually want to live like in a life where I'm afraid of certain foods. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Uh, I would, I would like I wouldn't want to, um, yeah, be some sort of um, in this fear, f- fear, fear bubble or something. Because sure. you know I've I've been more restrictive in the past as well. Like I've been keto, I've been uh, eliminating gluten and stuff like that. Uh, but just from my own. Um, like base experience of uh, eating more gluten and eating less gluten, I don't like notice any difference right. in my uh, well-being and performance and stuff like that. So it's uh, completely the same because I probably don't have any issues with that. Someone else may feel like yep. a huge difference, but uh, I personally don't. So I've re- I much rather rely on my own uh, personal results and personal experience to uh, make certain like uh, decisions about um, my diet. Yeah, no, for sure. One more thing alongside this before we switch gears is, you know, we talked a lot about nutrition and how we can utilize nutrition to leverage, uh, you know, as a means of health and wellness. What about fasting? I mean, and I already know your answer on this, considering, you know, you wrote a book on autophagy and fasting and nutrition. Uh, But, uh, you know, what's your thoughts even currently now? Because, you know, things change, right? I mean, you know, you could have written your Mm -hmm. book on autophagy and fasting and maybe, you know, you now you have a completely different view on it. What's your view now on fasting? and how we can utilize fasting as a means to uh, enhance stress resiliency. 
Yeah, well, I I do uh, like it still. I still uh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, and I haven't changed a lot about my opinions um, either. So, um, well, I guess maybe my explain my viewpoint on it. So, so I think that fasting is um, a great example of this um, stressor as well, a hormetic hormetic stressor. It does have some uh, potential effects on longevity and uh, anti-aging mm -hmm. although it's not like clearly demonstrated in humans yet uh, there is a lot of you know reasons to think that it mimics calorie restriction uh, which is associated with longevity and lifespan so just it uh, turns on the same pathways as calorie restriction does and has these similar effects on the body it's uh, in some sense it's psychologically it can be easier uh, than calorie restriction because you can still eat like a larger meal uh, but you do it in like a confined time frame that can be like a good for uh, psychological reasons and at the same time it can also be like a good way to uh, save time it uh, can also be something that you overdo a lot of uh, women may overdo it even men right. uh, can overdo it um, but at the same time like uh, I think eating three meals a day doesn't really give you any like a, it doesn't give you any like this uh, hormetic effect um, so just confining your eating window within like two meals or within like uh, 14 hours or uh, 16 hours or, or even uh, less sorry like you fast for 14 hours and 16 hours uh, or, mm -hmm. or more then uh, then it will have like some uh, benefits um, in terms of the stress adaptation side at least like it would have this hormetic effect that you would just not care if you get hungry so to say you can more easily go without food and you can go for longer without snacks and without sugars right. and those kind right. of things so th 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 it's undoubtedly will have this uh, resilience effect that you would be you know less less caring about food and uh, more resilient against uh, starvation basically or <laughs> skipping meals you will be more yeah. resilient against uh, missing a meal uh, yeah. but it does have like also like health benefits like it lowers blood pressure and lowers blood sugar um, lowers um, inflammation and uh, upregulates these longevity uh, pathways in the body yeah uh, how much do you need to do that i think that you don't really need to do do too much you can easily overdo it and um you know, there's maybe misconception that uh, the longer you fast, then the healthier it is, <laughs> and uh, that you need to always fast for like you know three days to get any benefit. Sure. Those are, I think most most they're both of them are, I think are wrong. You do already get a lot of benefits even if you just yeah, skip breakfast and uh, maybe skip dinner sometimes. Right. Uh, creating some vari variety can be uh, good for that. Uh, but yeah, generally you, you can already get some benefits by just you know narrowing down the eating window a little bit. Don't eat immediately after go waking up, and don't eat immediately before going to bed. Yeah. Either. Yeah. And you and you still need to and you still need to like combine it with some degree of you know uh, calorie restriction or eating moderate calories. You can't get away with it if you're just you know overeating uh, calories. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've seen people do. It's like you know they'll skip their breakfast, but then when they get their lunch or when they get to dinner, you know it's just like the the feast is there, and they feel sick after that. And I'm like, oh man, I feel like you defeated the purpose there. But you know, fasting is an interesting one because I feel like for the most part, from the research that I've seen, that most people, if not all people, I don't like to use the word all because not everybody. There's always exceptions. There is that. Most 
most people seem like they would benefit from some form of, you know, intermittent fasting. And I think for premenopausal women, it makes sense not to, you know, go over like 12 to 14 hours. Uh, postmenopausal women, you know, be a little bit different uh, for men, you know, it seems general like that, that, you know, 12 plus 16, you know, 14 to 16 hours seems like a really good spot because I, I like that there are immense physiological benefits there, but I also love the psychology of fasting. And the one thing that I love about the psychology of fasting is that most people, especially Americans, and again, I'm just saying most, I don't want, you know, nasty comments about no, not me. And they give me the story. Most is what I'm about to say. I preface it, uh, have never experienced what it was like to be hungry. Um, and they don't understand kind of some of the, uh, like truly hungry, um, because we feed ourselves all the time, especially as Americans. It's like we, we, you know, we wake up eating, we go to bed eating and there's snacks in between every single meal. And so when people first make the shift over to, let's say intermittent fasting and they skip breakfast, like there, there is a immense psychological play there. The first few times you do it and you're like, can I hold out? Do I have the resiliency to like, you know, not go and you know, grab a donut from a down the street or like get a pastry or whatever it may be. But then when I find when people overcome that, there's this huge sense of success and accomplishment that accompanies it. But then also too, when people truly start to experience the strong cognitive benefits of fasting and the focused and the mental clarity, like a lot of people that I have met and I've coached in the past and I've dealt with in the health and wellness space, like that for them is the biggest sell because they're like, for me, I just felt sluggish after breakfast. I felt sluggish after lunch. Like I had no mental clarity throughout the day. I engaged in, you know, let's say a 12, 14, 16 hour fast. And now like, I just feel sharp. Like I just feel mentally sharp. Um, is that something you've seen kind of within your, your work with clientele? Yeah. Well, that's what I've experienced with myself as well. Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. like I noticed a huge or noticed a huge, um, mental clarity and uh, productivity after I started it when I started it like eight years ago <laughs> or even more like sure. yeah, nine years ago almost now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I do notice a huge um, mental side from that. And yeah, like the freedom is uh, so clear that uh, you feel very empowered uh, of not needing to eat. And uh, exactly. you're not afraid. You're not afraid of, you know, skipping meals and you're not afraid of, um, you know, missing it on out. And you're not never in a hurry to like eat a sandwich before a class or something else <laughs> like that. So right. it's uh, very liberating in that sense. And other people, uh, well, with that, I think the majority of people, I would say like 80% people do notice that it does improve their clarity and uh, focus and productivity, or at least it doesn't decrease it. Yeah, uh, for and sure. Maybe like, and maybe like, maybe like 20% people tend to notice that it actually makes them more groggy or um, mm-hmm. less focused or uh, they get super hungry that you can't control it at all. And, yeah. uh, or like... I think it's a different topic, but yeah, like some people may also like you know rebound or they binge after breaking the fast, right. which is like different uh, issue issue. But uh, generally, like eighty percent people do notice that it, at least it doesn't uh, decrease their performance or focus and potentially increases. And twenty percent people uh, notice that it. Uh, decreases it and makes it uh, worse. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, uh, uh, it would be probably a bit much for us to unpack the topic of of kind of like this post fast binge that you were referring to. But I've seen that as as well. And you know, a lot of people too. And this is kind of a touchy sub subject, so I'll go ahead and kind of preface it with that. You know, I've heard this idea. And you know, as me as a clinical health and performance psychologist and as someone who's licensed as a professional clinician, uh, you know, I get qu- asked the question all the time. Well, like, is fasting not going to kind of like 
like instill these really poor behavioral patterns and disordered eating. And it's touchy because, you know, there are ways that I've seen that unfortunately it has become disordered for people. But I think it's less about that behavior in particular. It's just about this individual and how they interact with the world in general. However, I have seen the uh, this idea of people and I don't know, and maybe you could better explain this than I can of like they'll engage in these post fast binges. And I don't know if it's because of the significant hormonal dysregulation for that individual because of maybe underlying problems they have, or maybe if it's much more of a psychological play there, or maybe a bit of both that's interacting, which I feel like is probably the answer for most things. Do you have any uh, good understanding as to what happens and why there are people who engage in like these post fast binges? I don't know about like the psychology that much. Uh, but I would know that phys- physically, like, yeah, that your ghrelin, the hunger hormone does go up with uh, fasting. And if you have high ghrelin, then obviously you would just get hungrier and want to eat more sure. and, uh, like, gorge yourself. Um, part of it can is, like, like trained response or it's uh, it can be deconditioned, so to say, like, after you get used to it, maybe, like, within a few days or uh, maybe, like, a week or two, then you should normalize that response that happened for me quite easily um or at least my hunger levels have decreased to the point where i don't notice like any any like serious hunger during my fasting at all sure um and uh the other reason could also be that it's uh, like a lack of electrolytes mm-hmm. which is uh, interesting because it's called like this uh, refeeding syndrome yeah which uh, yeah. refeeding that refeeding that refeeding doesn't mean like uh, like this binging uh, but the refeeding refers to uh, like this dangerous actually response that may happen if you're coming out of a, like a super long fast, uh, like a several day fast, five day, seven day fast, and then you eat, then you may get like low blood sodium levels, which may cause, uh, you know, faint and potentially death as well. If you like uh, break the fast with uh, right. foods that, uh, let's say, spike your insulin levels and that insulin will shuttle the nutrients like sodium and other B- B12 or B vitamins, uh, thiamine into the cell out of the bloodstream and you end up with low levels of them in the bloodstream. So you like, you know, potentially have some serious health outcomes from that. Um, Sim, can and, you, uh, can you mitigate that effect by supplementing with something like maybe say prior to breaking a fast? So like when I've done extended fast, a lot of times, you know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll uh, supplement with like Kinton or some other type of remineralization or electrolytes. Like I've used element before, uh, any ways that you've mm-hmm. seen to help mitigate that prior to breaking the fast? Yeah, I mean, like any kind of a salt or electrolyte uh, would do, I think, because sure. you know the reason it happened. The reason it happens is because you're uh, when you're fasting, then your blood sodium levels would uh, already drop, and uh, breaking the fast and raising insulin would uh, deplete the bloodstream from uh, the last bit of that salt sure. as well. So right. you, if you have like high blood sodium levels by just drinking salt water and uh, taking electrolytes, then it would be um, uh, mitigated or. All right, man. Well, so I, I know that, you know, there are a couple of areas that I wanted us to get to, but I know that we're, uh, we're getting a little bit long here and I want to make sure that, I, that I'm respectful of your time. Like, I'd love to have you back on sometime, you know, to talk about the effects of, of, you know, hot exposure, sauna and the, and as well as, as well as the kind of the antithesis or the opposite of like cold immersion. And we talked a little mm-hmm. bit about that at the beginning. But one thing that I did want to talk about prior to us wrapping up and the thing that I'm always kind of really interested in, and those who do are engaged in health and wellness and in biohacking and 
health optimization. And a lot of my listeners always tell me like, can you ask about this? What I'm about to ask about, which is like daily routines. Like people are really interested in what people do in the health and wellness space as far as their daily routine. Uh, it's something that Ben Greenfield uh, gets talked about like all the time. And he, he loves doing podcasts where he just talks about it because he, he changes things up. So I'm wondering if you might be able to kind of wrap us up by like walking us through like, what do you do on a daily basis? And maybe that, you know, looks different day to day, which is absolutely fine and would only make sense that it's that way. But what does kind of like a typical day look like for you? Uh, I don't have, well, I do have like, like structure in my day. I don't mm-hmm. have like any specific routines that I need to do uh, for the last few years. Um, like in the past, I would do, yeah, like I need to take a cold shower every day <laughs> yeah. and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but nowadays I'll, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, like less strict or less rigid, um, but I do have like solids just out of habit routines that I do as a chance. Like sure. I'll wake up in the morning, I'll wake up in the morning. I usually wake up maybe around like seven Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then I'll oh, do so you're like not one of the uh, crazy crazy early morning you know guys <laughs> who gets up at like you know three thirty four a.m. which is it seems like that's becoming a new trend now <laughs> yeah well I've uh, not at the moment but uh, in college I did this polyphasic sleeping where I oh, slept for you? like four four hours per 24 hour period and uh, I woke crazy. up at like 2 a.m. or something like that <laughs> that's <laughs> and, crazy uh, took, took several naps uh, throughout the day but uh, yeah not not at the moment um, yeah, I wake up at like seven and, uh, I do like red light in the morning, 15 minutes mm-hmm. uh, after that. But like on a juve panel or do you just go out and get sun or? Uh, well, I have like red light rising, which is a yep. UK based brand. Sure, yeah. But sure. yeah, like a, like, yeah, like a juve panel. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, 15 minutes red light, I may take a cold shower and then I'll start usually working. I'll, uh, yeah, like just, uh, writing creation uh, research whatever it happens to be sure. and I'll do that for like you know the next four hours or something like that um, so this is gonna mean like work block that I do initially in a row I'll work and uh, after that I'll take like a break I'll go for a walk drink some coffee uh, maybe have like a, some meal smaller meal uh, or snack uh, mm-hmm. or I'll skip it on some days as well I'll, I do a lot of one meal a day frequently as well sure and uh, after that then I'll continue working a bit, a few more hours. I'll work out to a zona. Mm, maybe have a podcast in the evening again, or a coaching session, whatever it may be, and have dinner. And uh, then after that, usually after dinner, I try to yeah just wrap up and uh, not work at all and not do anything those kind of things and just uh, relax and wind down. So I'll just prepare for sleep and I'll you know start wearing blue blockers or uh, dim down the lights mm-hmm. like an hour or thirty minutes before bed. Sure. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of it. What, when, when do you cut off like technology use? Is that right, right around the same time when you throw your blue blockers on? I will. Uh, sometimes I'll wear the blue blockers and still use my phone. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so like, yeah. I'm not. I'm not like. I'm not. I'm. I'm quite easily. I'm. Um, I don't know how to say it. Like, I'm. I'm very easily uh, able to uh, wind down. So yeah. I can even just yeah. watch. I could. I could. I could even watch the news or something like that before bed and not be uh, triggered by it or sure. not be affected. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but that's great. I'll, I'll, I'll still, I'll still be cautious with the blue light because that's more like more physical that you can't control uh, psychologically. Yeah, yeah, I know for sure. What about things like uh, meditation, breath work? Uh, include any of those in, uh, as a part of your routine by a chance? I have uh, mm-hmm. done uh, meditation as well in the past. Like uh, I did transcendental meditation for yeah, maybe like two years. Sure. Uh, recently, I've just kind of stop doing that mm-hmm. um, but I do like meditate 
in some like moments of meditation throughout the day. Sure. Uh, quite frequently, like if I'm walking, then it's kind of a meditation. If I'm, yeah, making a cup of coffee, then I do have like a, this mindfulness break or something. So I I never feel that I'm like unmindful or I never feel that I've lost my um, ability to be present and ability yeah. to. Uh, be mindful so I, I i try to implement these kind of things i do like handstands i do like calisthenics exercises that require this full body uh, presence as well yes, yeah. so i do think i don't i don't specifically sit down to meditate sure always i do i do may do it like maybe once or twice a week uh, yeah. uh on the red light panel but um I don't do it like every day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on the, on the show, one of the things that I've talked about plenty of times is that like I did years of daily structured formal meditation and what that allowed for now is years of not having to feel like I need to do daily formal meditation and I can do more of informal mindfulness training where it's like, yes, paying attention like on my runs. Like, so like when I go on a run in the morning, let's say if I'm doing like a five to 10 mile run, like I'll go out with no headphones, no technology other than like my Garmin wristwatch, which is just, you know, tell me my pace and heart rate and whatever. Uh, uh, and, and then just kind of like take in the scenery because, you know, I'll be walking around town here and it's just everybody's face is down in the phone. So for me, it's like a level of, of meditation and it's just awareness and it's informal. So I, I like that idea yeah. because so many people get wrapped up into this idea of like, oh, I should be, you know, setting aside time for formal meditation. And it's like, well, should you? Maybe. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's beneficial, but it's also yeah. just beneficial to informally engage in the people that are in front of you, like not be at a, you know, a dinner table sitting on your phone like put it down and talk to the people and engage with the in the people with the people around you and so i uh, know i totally understand that too because mine has evolved as well where even though I'm a, you know, a, a said HRV breathwork expert is that I don't do a lot of formal breathwork training anymore, uh, other than, mm. you know, just, just kind of informally doing it on my runs or on a walk or like when I'm sitting and it kind of hits me that like my mind is drifting and, and, and going all over the place. So no, I, 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 I understand that there. Now, one, one last thing before we call this, call this a, a podcast is I wanted to ask you a little bit about your new book. So I know that you and James D. Nicolantonio, which is always a mouthful for me to say, uh, have have been you know really putting out a lot of great work out there. I know you guys had you know mineral fix and you had immunity fix, and then am I missing one? I know you get your your new one that I'm about to announce here. But did you guys do any yeah. other ones? No, the, the this is the third one. The third yeah. one, yeah. So tell us, it's called Win, correct? Is that is that what it's called? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, tell win, tell and, us a little uh, about it. Yeah, it's uh, basically. Um, it's you know uh, framed as if it's like a you know a athlete book for athletes um, and uh, you know people who are engaged in like higher level of uh, performance and people who want to strive towards higher level of performance. Uh, but it's also applicable to just the every everyday people. But yeah, the main kind of topics of the book is just physical fitness and like athleticism. Um, it doesn't. It 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 basically gives you like a framework or a, like a blueprint for uh, optimizing your nutrition, exercise, uh, hydration, uh, electrolytes, um, even like, you know, uh, acidity, alkalinity, those kind of things, uh, recovery, the sauna, the cold is huge. We have a yeah, chapter for that, uh, supplementation, sleep, immunity, as well as like different kinds of uh, biohacks and uh, awesome. gadgets that may have like a performance enhancing effect. So it's a, basically like a blueprint for creating like an athletic and fit uh, body. Uh, for I any any it. kind of purpose, and and then you you can use that same uh, principles of the book for any kind of a sport 
um, you know, whether that be MMA or uh, bodybuilding or um, CrossFit, whatever. Sure. Awesome, man. Cool. Well, uh, is, is that available now? Can people go on to Amazon? We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it's on uh, Amazon. Sweet. So win. Win, win by uh, Simland and by James D. Nicolantonio. So we'll put that in the show notes for everybody, um, as well as kind of where people can find you. So where's the, where's the best way to find you? Because I know you obviously have a website. Um, so go feel free to uh, plug that. And then also I know that you're very active on like social media. So what's uh, what's what's the handles? Yeah, my uh, all my handles are uh, C Blunt. So uh, mm-hmm. on YouTube, uh, Instagram. Those are the platforms, and uh, my website is eblund.com. All right, awesome, and we'll put that put that in there. Um, are you uh, are you accepting any like individual clients now? Or are you involved in too much work to be able to to take that on now? Uh, well, I do uh, I have more room for sure, um, or you know, <laughs> depends on yeah, like what kind of issue it is and if I can help. But uh, sure. people always reach out and uh, ask for help. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, dude, thanks for, for coming on here. You've been a wealth of knowledge and some really great areas of love being able to talk about the concept of hormesis and how we can leverage stress, you know, for it to really help us and not just see it as, as this massive hindrance or something to fear or demonize. So I really uh, appreciate you having on or coming on, man. Yeah, it was uh, fun talking with you. And uh, yeah, would be fun to do another one in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you everybody for listening again. Hanu Health Podcast will be back next Friday with all new podcasts. You guys take care. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.